Thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. This ministry desires to help people know and live for Christ through the preaching of God's Word. And now, today's message. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Chaplain Dan Braswell. We are so glad that you're here at Schofield Community Chapel. Today we're going to be starting a new sermon series. If you have your Bible, I hope that you do. I invite you to turn there to Nehemiah chapter 1. To Nehemiah chapter 1. For the past several weeks, we have been in a study that we entitled Connecting with the Center. And we studied through the book of Jonah, seeing how God used Jonah and God taught Jonah some lessons about reaching out to the lost and reaching out to others. We also looked at several other passages of Scripture, the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Just last week, we closed out our Connecting with the Center series with Chaplain Harrison teaching us the Romans Road. By the way, uh, be on the lookout for the Facebook page in the next few days. We'll be not only posting his sermon, but also posting his outline that I hope we are all able to use tangibly. You could take that outline and you could walk through the book of Romans and you could tell someone about Jesus. Today we're going to change gears in our big picture of our preaching plan. We thought, okay, we've connected with the center, but now we're going to connect with community. We're going to look at the book of Nehemiah for the next several weeks as we look at at this subject, Christ-centered communities. And we're going to talk about how to fight for the faith. As we go through the book of Nehemiah in the next several weeks, we're going to see that Nehemiah, he was a layman. He He was not a priest. He wasn't a chaplain or anything like that. He is a regular guy who ended up being the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. King Artaxerxes was part of of those who put Israel, Jerusalem, in captivity. They were in captivity for 70 years. This is the southern kingdom of Judah. Imagine, if you will, if someone took over the United States and then you ended up working for that leader. That's essentially what Nehemiah did. The book of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. If you look in your Bible right before Nehemiah, you have what? You have Ezra. Ezra is going to talk about the rebuilding of the temple. But Nehemiah is going to talk about the rebuilding of the wall. Nehemiah is essentially a counterinsurgency operation. For those of you who know what that means. How many of y'all ever served in a coin environment? In other words, if you've deployed in the past 20 years, you probably know what I mean when I use the acronym COIN. In Nehemiah, you tell me if this sounds familiar. In Nehemiah, you have a team who is rebuilding some stuff, and you also have a team that's pulling security while the other guys are rebuilding stuff around a perimeter. Has anybody in this room done anything remotely like that? If you have, raise your hand. I figured so. It's amazing how things come full circle. Thousands of years ago, they were doing coin operations. Nehemiah is going to do coin operations too. Today, I'm only going to look specifically at the first three verses of Nehemiah. But what we hope we can do is we hope we can paint a picture for the next several weeks. And I hope that you come 
and I hope that you that you plug in. By the way, here recently, it's been a great joy just to, to talk to soldiers and things. Just a few weeks ago, a soldier had told me, said, Chaplain, I just, I just want to find a place. I grew up in church, and I'm here on this island, and I just want to find a place I can find some community. Well, have I got a place for you, right? Right here, Schofield Community Chapel. We're so glad that you're here. Nehemiah had a mission from God to rebuild the wall. And as I was looking at that mission, I want to share a story with you from right before World War II. This is in 1940, 1941, that winter time. That is prior to Pearl Harbor because Pearl Harbor was the following winter. That is, remember, that's what brought America into World War II, as you know. But there was some mail that arrived on the desk of a U.S. senator back in those days. His name was Senator Harry Truman. You know him as President Harry Truman, but back then he was not known as president. He wasn't really known as the senator from Kansas. He was known as the senator from Pendergast because Pendergast was a political boss who essentially propped up Truman and, and wanted him just to be quiet, answer the mail, don't cause any trouble while Pendergast continued to do things that we now know were, were not right in, in government. Well, Senator Truman, across his desk, he found some letters, and he learned about some widespread corruption that was going on, particularly in America's buildup of what the president at the time called an arsenal of democracy. What essentially was happening was as we were supporting Great Britain in their fight, as they were already at war during that time, Truman found out that there was some shady stuff going on. Truman read some letters and he had some documents that proved, hey, wait a minute, we are cheating. Contractors are, are cheating to make more money. Cost plus kind of things are going around. There's contractors sitting around doing nothing and making lots of money. And also, they were cutting corners on the products that they were making, which, by the way, were for the war. So it was soldier safety was going to be at stake. Sailor safety was going to be at stake because the products they were making were not up to standard. So it was literally a matter of life or death. Well, Truman drove, get this, he drove 10,000 miles all across the continental United States to gather research to figure out what to do to, to fight this travesty. He didn't hire his own planes, he spent his own money, and he did all these things to find out what was going on. It was a bombshell, and here's what happened. He reached out to the president, said, hey, Mr. President, here's what's going on. Nothing happened. Truman kept pressing. He took his findings and he put them before the floor of the Senate at the time. And the Senate established what became known as the Truman Committee to look at the waste. The Truman Committee produced 50 reports over time and they exposed all the flaws and ways to do it better. Truman's work saved the U.S. government $15 billion, which was real money back in 1940, $15 billion, and more importantly, untold thousands of lives of the men who'd be using the machines of war after we joined just a year later. Today, Harry Truman is not known as the senator from Pendergast. You may have never even heard that name until I mention it now, but he is known as one of the greatest presidents of the United States. I share that story because in a very similar fashion, Nehemiah with, a, with an almost Harry Truman-like tenacity saw a need and he, he decided he was going to do something about that need. What I want you and I to think about today is 
How are we going to be a part of building community? We could do that one of three ways. Nehemiah, he was constructive. When I was growing up, my dad used to ask the question, and by the way, my brother and his family are here today, John and Deanna and Bruce and Rachel. We're so glad they're here. But my dad used to ask us a question. Are you being right now constructive or destructive? Usually he asked that question because someone was being what? You can guess. Destructive. And he wanted them to be more constructive. Nehemiah was constructive. You and I in building community, we can either be destructive. We're hurting the work. When we read through Nehemiah, you're going to find some people in there who are detrimental to the work. You're going to find some people who are obstructive. They're just getting in the way. But then you're going to find people who are constructive. In rebuilding Jerusalem, we've already said you had Ezra the priest who represented the religious side. And then there's Nehemiah who was a layman. He did not take as long to ride around Jerusalem as did Truman around the United States because he had a smaller location. But when he came back, he made his report. He essentially took hold of a problem. He cast a vision to rebuild this wall. And he started the great process of change. With that said, I want to read the opening verses of the book of Nehemiah. And you follow along and I'll read it to you. Here's what it says. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile. In other words, he's checking on the folks back home. And concerning Jerusalem, verse number three. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And that is the beginning of the story of the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem in the book of Nehemiah. As we were looking at this book and we've all begun studying it, uh, together as chaplains, we were talking about the need for community. We, we want us to have community. Before I share with you some ways we can fight for the faith in just a minute, I want to fast forward a little bit to the New Testament because I want to paint a bigger picture of what God is calling you and me to do in terms of being a part of, of His community or His church. Uh, to do that, I want to talk a little bit about community from the perspective of the New Testament. And what I'd ask you to do is turn to a couple of passages with me so we can set the stage for what Christ-centered community is. Hold your place in Nehemiah. We'll come back in just a minute. But go ahead and turn if you have a Bible or a digital one. That's fine, too. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. I want to read something to you. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew's going to talk about the church being a family. Uh, this, is, this is not on the outline in your bulletin, but if you, you're taking notes in Matthew chapter 12, I want you to look at verses 48 through 50. It's going to talk about being family, community's family. Here, look, at, look at what Jesus said in verse 48. He replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Verse 49, stretching out his hands to his disciples, he said what? Here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Community, God's people should be family. We, we should have other Christian brothers and sisters that, that we are close to. And that's going to have to take place here, certainly in chapel, but I hope and pray that it's taking place outside of chapel, whether that be at, at a navigator's, whether that be at a home Bible study, whether that be at Protestant women of the chapel, whether that be with friends and family that you have that are fellow Christians, we're supposed to be family. That's how we build community. That's Christ-centered community. I want you to turn. Let me show you another one. 1 Corinthians. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We won't read all of this, but I'll start in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. In this passage, we won't read it all, but Paul uses the illustration of the church as a body. And he talks about part of it being the eye. He talks about part of it being the ear. And he's making the point that every part of your body is important. Did you know that every one of you are important to God's family? It matters not what our rank is. It matters not what our age is. It matters not how long we've came to this chapel. All that matters is that if we have trusted Christ as our Savior, we're part of God's people. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. We're one body. We are one body. He calls us, we won't have to turn there, but I'll summarize it for you. In Acts chapter 2, at the end of Acts chapter 2, it tells us that after Peter preached, that they were regularly, what? Fellowshipping together. They were regularly praying together. They are regularly breaking bread. If you want to write that down as a reference, that's Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. I'm sharing this with you because it's important for you and I to understand that if we're going to have a Christ-centered community, and if we're going to fight for the faith, we have to understand that's the community God's calling us to be a part of. It, it, is, it is that we fellowship together. It is that we break bread together. I'll share another one with you. You don't have to turn there, but I'll, I'll give you the reference. In 1 Corinthians, again, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 is where he makes the statement that you and I are part of the temple of God. You and I, we are part of the temple of God. What is God's building? It's not so much a chapel. This is a building, and I'm glad we have it to worship in, but it's a multi-purpose facility. You could do all kinds of things in this building. The true church, the true building, you and I are God's building. You, you and I are God's temple because God, the Holy Spirit, lives in you and, and, he, and he lives in me. God's calling us to have Christ-centered communities and we are God's temple. I'll give you one more reference. We are God's building, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. In fact, I'll read it to you. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. I want you to understand this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. We live in a time where people are more isolated than ever. The cure for that isolation is being a part of God's family. You and I as Christians, we're part of the household of God. 
of God. This idea of having Christ-centered community, it's not so much an institution, it's more organic. It's not so much acquaintances, it's real relation with one another. It's real community. If we're going to grow a community, it's not so much that you have professional ministers, like a chaplain doing the ministry. It's more like everyone who's part of the family is, in fact, a minister. Does, does that make sense? That's what God's calling us to do. It's not so much individualism. It's being a part of others. It's communal. It's, it, it is, in fact, community. We talk all the time, you hear senior leaders, and I'm all about taking care and helping with destructive behaviors. We want to stop destructive behaviors in soldiers. And all the quote-unquote experts point to the fact that it has to do with isolation. It has to do with not having friends around them. It has to do with soldiers find themselves in, in these depressions because they have nowhere to turn. The solution for that is Christ-centered communities where you bear my burdens and I bear your burdens. That's what we need. We can supply that in a way that no other institution or no other entity can. We provide community. Now, with all that said, I want, us to, I want you to be thinking about how we can be a Christ-centered community. I want to see some principles from the book of Nehemiah as we get ready to study it in the next several weeks, let me share three principles with you. I want you to go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, and I want you to follow along in your Bible. Stay there, and I'm going to share three ways you and I can fight for the faith. Nehemiah was in a battle. As he was trying to build the wall, he had enemies all around him. He had literally people attacking him. I think it's safe to say and fair to say Nehemiah and those people were at war. Point number one, the first way we fight for the faith, you start where you are. You, every journey begins with one step. You have to start somewhere. Start where you are. Now that we're back in Nehemiah, I want you to go down and I want you to read verse number 11. I won't get in it too much because next week we're going to talk about the importance of prayer. We're going to look at, at Nehemiah's prayer, but just look at verse 11 with me. Look at what he says. This is Nehemiah speaking. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servant who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then he makes this statement. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Start where you are. Nehemiah was not a chaplain. Nehemiah was not a pastor. Nehemiah was one of those in captivity, and he was cupbearer to the king. In 580-something B.C., the southern part of Israel was destroyed by Babylon. They, at that time, killed many Israelites. We think they took approximately 50,000 Israelites' captivity. And... The book of Nehemiah is the story of rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah was the cupbearer. What that means, in case you don't know, the cupbearer was the one where Nehemiah would drink of the king's drink, and then the king would drink of it. Nehemiah was a test to make sure nobody poisoned the king. That's what a cupbearer did. 
That was Nehemiah's task at hand. That was what they gave him to do. He would drink the king's drink. And as you read through the book of Nehemiah, you find out that Nehemiah used that opportunity to interact with the king. He, he's, Nehemiah is one of those people whose country was invaded and he had been taken by the enemy. He's in a sense a POW. And he's working for the very king who is responsible for taking his people captive. Not the best job to have. Imagine, like I said earlier, a country taking over the United States and you being plucked from the United States, going to their country, and you work for the very people who invaded you and captured you. That is where he is. Start where you are. Then my question is, where are you? Some may be here and you talk about building community and these kind of things. You say, oh, no, no, chaplain, that's not me. I'm just a fill in the blank. We all have to start where we are. I wasn't always the skinny, middle-aged, gray-headed man you see before you. I know you found that hard to believe. I used to be a not gray-headed, but also not skinny young man. I was a pastor, and I was the poster child for a pastor from the southeast in this sense. I was the same height I am now. I think I pegged out at about 260 pounds, and soldiers who like to work out, let me tell you, it was not because I was getting those gains. You understand what I'm saying? I was a poster child for a fat preacher in the southeast. That's who I was. Now, that all changed. Because Cheryl and I, my wife and I, we adopted four children. And I came to realize I'm physically in such bad shape, I can't even hang out with my kids. They, are, they have too much energy for me. I can't do it. And I decided that I was going to start working out. And then, this is another story, but somewhere along the way, as you can imagine, the concept of being an Army chaplain came across my mind. And then I told myself, oh, I guess I better learn how to run. Apparently, you can't be 260 pounds in my height and be in the Army, and I was pear-shaped, so the height weight, I, would, I wouldn't have passed tape either, so I started running. Guess what I did? Our church had a little softball field. I started at home plate, and I went around the outfield, and when I came back to left, you started at right field, I ran around. When I came back to left field, guess what? I couldn't even make it back to home without running. And I'm not going to lie, I sat at home plate right there, and I had a little pity party, and I said, oh, God, I'm never going to be able to get in shape. I'm never going to be able to do this. But I had to start somewhere, right? You and I probably can have many, many stories where we had to start somewhere. You all have stories where you decided to go to school, you decided to do this, you decided to do that, and it all started somewhere. Let me encourage you, Christ-centered communities, how to fight for the faith— Start somewhere. I want to lead my family in the Lord. Start somewhere. Go home tonight and read the Bible together. That's a start, right? Start somewhere. I want to mend that relationship. I've been, we've, we've been fighting for years. Start somewhere. You've got to start somewhere. Number one, start where you are. Nehemiah, he, 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 wasn't, he wasn't who I would have picked for this big reform because he was a guy in captivity. He was a cupbearer. What, what is his credentials? He just started where he was. And he went from there. Number one, start where you are. Point number two, embrace your opportunities. Embrace your opportunities. 
I think as we read verse 11, as Nehemiah prayed his heart out to God, I think, I can't help but think that Nehemiah felt the weight of this assignment. I think he knew that where he was at and his position was no accident. Position is no accident. And what I mean by that is God is always at work in your life. Jesus says in the New Testament that he would see where the Father was working and he would join God where he's working. God's always at work in your life and he's always at work in my life. As we think about how to fight for the faith and how to have Christ-centered community, it's no accident wherever you are in life right now. I can't help but think about Esther. Remember that great statement she said, for such a time as this. I can't help but think about the wise men and Joseph. Remember? Where the wise men were led in a dream to, to go another way. It's no accident. Embrace our opportunities. we got to start somewhere. Number one. But number two, as we have these opportunities come our way, embrace them. One of the pieces of advice I always give soldiers as they PCS is find a community quickly and join it. If you're like me, as you've been in the military, you only stay somewhere for two years, three years. Some of, sometimes some of you have stories even shorter than that. Find those places of community and join them quickly. Embrace your opportunities. Nehemiah had an opportunity here that was actually started as a crisis. The walls were in ruin. Why is that important? Because the walls of Jerusalem were their security. That was their safety. And in order to have a safe community, in order to have a safe environment to raise their family, they needed that wall. They saw an opportunity and Nehemiah embraced that opportunity. I remember when I was a pastor still, this is before the army, Cheryl and I had contemplated um, adopting children. And when we were still serving at a church, we went to a, uh, a convention at our denomination and, and they, they, they had the theme of adoption. And and I listened, and honestly, Cheryl was on board, as many times our wives are, a little bit quicker with God's plan than I was. But I was listening about adoption, and it, it continued to kind of come before me. It seemed like everywhere I went, somebody was talking about adoption. Well, our church at the time had a partnership with a place where, that did a sports camp. And during that sports camp, I began to work with all the little children at the sports camp. It was in the lower part of the state of South Carolina. Big sports camp, kids everywhere. And I was an extra guy. I said, hey, just plug me in anywhere. And they plugged me in with these little kids. And this one kid, those of you who work with children, you ever had the one child who's always a little bit of a challenge? And sometimes you just, you just throw somebody at that kid and, hey, take care of that guy. Take care of that little boy. I was that guy. That was my job was to take care of this little kid. This little kid was everywhere. He ran all over the place. He he used to he would he would like just he would just eat stuff. He would he would eat the dirt. He would eat whatever. He'd just do it just to show out. Just just he was a wild man. Just running all over the place. Had a ball with him. And through that little boy, who I can't even remember his name now, somehow God used that to say, Hey, 
this little boy needed somebody. There's other children who need somebody. Go do it. Cheryl and I began to pray about this a little bit longer, and then we had to start somewhere, so we picked up the phone and called an adoption agency. Long story short, Cheryl and I adopted a sibling group of four 11 years ago who are now ages 15 to 25 years old. We had to start somewhere. And at some point, we had to embrace it. There's going to come a time in your life, if, if, if you're going to have a Christ-centered community, if you're going to fight for those things that are important, there's going to come a time you have to embrace those things. Now, number three. Number three is simple. To have a Christ-centered community, number three is you have to determine what is important. Point number three, determine what is important. I want to show you a couple of glimpses in Nehemiah on our last point here that show us that Nehemiah made some decisions about what was important. Flip over to Nehemiah chapter 4 and look at what he says in verse 14. Look at what he says in verse 14. I'll fast forward for you very quickly. Nehemiah made a decision. He was going to figure out a way to help build this wall. He got the king's permission to get the supplies built. He, he does some recon. He checks out the wall. He starts to build the wall in Nehemiah 4. He finds opposition. Look at what he says in verse 14 as the opposition arose. I looked and I arose and I said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them, that is the enemies. And he says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Nehemiah is making a decision on what is important to him. He says his faith is worth fighting for. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is worth fighting for. Keep reading. He says, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Look what he says. Fight for who? Fight for who? Your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. You know what Nehemiah is making a decision on what is important? You know what he's determined? Faith's important. He's also determined that family is going to be important to him. By the way, if you keep reading, you know what you're going to find? As they had to pull security on the wall, you know what he did? He would station the man up above and the children and the family behind him. Do you know why? Because his thought process was that man will fight for his family. Our families are worth fighting for. If we're going to have Christ-centered community, our faith is important. Our family is important. I hope that as we go through the book of Nehemiah, we, we keep these things in mind. They, they are worth fighting for. Your families. Our future is worth fighting for. He says in that passage, fight for your family, fight for your homes. When you read through the book of Nehemiah, what you're going to find is you're going to find a man who not only rebuilds the wall, but then he continues to work in his community to make things better. Things that are, that are, that are wrong, that are against the Lord, he does his part to make right. There's some people who are being treated unfairly. Nehemiah stands up for them. There, there's some there's some things that aren't that aren't happening. The scriptures weren't being emphasized like they should be. They had a revival where they read scripture all day long. We're going to talk about that story uh, later on. He decided that there's some things that are worth fighting for. And by the way, you're I'm sure familiar with this. Over the weekend, 
the United States Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Church, let me say this. There's some things that are worth fighting for. Fighting for those who can't fight for themselves is something worth fighting for. And let me urge you, church, to, as you think about Christ-centered community, how can you be a blessing to others? There may come a day where God's church is called upon to adopt even more children. There may come a day where God's calling people to foster children as more children are born in America. Will you and I be a part of what God is doing? What's worth fighting for? What kind of Christ-centered community do we want to be? Those things are worth fighting for. For the past few weeks, we've been talking about connecting with the center. Soldiers and families all around us, they're worth fighting for. They're worth loving. And they're worth reaching out to and saying, hey, be a part of God's community. We love you. We care about you. Things worth fighting for. Will you join us in the next several weeks in thinking about how we can be a Christ-centered community as we study through the book of Nehemiah? I invite you to pray, for, pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would lead us in the next coming weeks to be a part of your community. God, to join together in looking at your word, I pray that we would find and think about those things worth fighting for. I pray that we would start where we are, that we would commit, and God, that we would determine that being a part of your community and reaching out to others and growing in our faith and loving others is something that's going to be important to us. God, I pray that you would lead and guide us as we do these things. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.